and welcome to Challenging Education from Cognita. I'm Beth Kerr, Group Wellbeing Director. And I'm Simon Canby, the Group Education Director at Cognita. This is a special episode of the podcast that's also been released as a video. You can see it on our website, cognita.com. Now, students, teachers and schools are about to go through another challenging moment in the COVID-19 journey. The move from lockdown to the return to school is going to be a new environment to the one we're all used to with different routines, different layouts and different ways to interact. And to discuss this today, we're joined by a distinguished guest, Professor Tanya Byron. Professor Byron is a chartered clinical psychologist who specialises in working with children and with adolescents. During this episode, Professor Byram will be giving parents and students expert advice and support for the return to school, as well as the weeks and months ahead. Of course, the experience during lockdown has been different for everyone. And today we're going to explore issues that parents and young people in our schools have told us are significant for them, and especially how to navigate those in the return to school, learning from expert advice. Tanya Byron is a professor in the public understanding of science, a government advisor, lecturer, trustee of the NSPCC, Times columnist, author and broadcaster. But she is first and foremost a clinician, passionate and committed to working with people of all ages with a variety of psychological, emotional and mental health issues. Tanya, very warm welcome. Hello, thank you for having me. Now, Tanya, as a clinical psychologist, you connect scientific evidence with practical advice. Is there any evidence available about how the pandemic is impacting the mental health of young people and children during this time? Yes, there is actually um, a a friend and colleague of mine, um, Professor Cathy Cresswell and her team at Oxford University, literally since the pandemic started, um, opened a a huge piece of research, um, which is called CoSpace. And that stands for COVID-19 supporting parents, adolescents and children during the pandemic. They've been taking survey data from a really a huge, huge sample of parents, uh, children and young people across um, the country, just looking at their experience of of lockdown and and, and of the pandemic. The biggest impact that, uh, that she's finding in her research is the impact of stress and anxiety on uh, not just on adults who are dealing with working from home and, and all the other issues, but it's also impacting children and, and young people. Some children are becoming really scared about leaving home, going outside, um, and that obviously can have implications when parents are thinking about children going back to school. Um, and, and when you d- sort of do a deeper dive into that, you know, it's children really internalizing a fear about um, a virus and about people catching it and about the impact on, on people they love and on themselves. Um, and, you know, children can just absorb messages and hear things um, without us even realizing. Tanya, as a practicing cl- clinician, you're obviously seeing things firsthand. Tell us about the, the types of issues you see in your practice and in particular how these issues have changed during COVID. I'm dealing with children with, um, you know, pre-existing conditions that can range across a number of areas, um, generally related to um, acute or chronic levels of anxiety, um, children who are struggling with with depression, um, and then associated behaviours that would come off those kinds of difficulties, everything from school avoidance and school refusal to self-harming behaviour, eating disorders, suicidal thinking. What we've been seeing clinically is that initially a lot of children with pre-existing conditions were actually doing okay, partly because 
the stresses of life had just been closed down for them. Less pressure, going to school, having to go out, having to socialise, all, all the things that, that children who are vulnerable in terms of mental health can struggle with. These are the children now that are beginning to get quite um, markedly more anxious again. Schools are now beginning to go back. Some schools in some countries have gone back. Um, you know, um, there is a greater level of anxiety and a kind of push up in symptom type behavior in those children. In children who didn't have pre-existing conditions, they often struggled more initially because their lives had just changed out of all recognition. And all those markers of the quality of life for children and young people were sort of taken away. Seeing their friends, being away from their parents, having freedom, being outside. So it's been interesting to see how the differences have played out amongst different kinds of children and young people. Could you help us to understand what's happening when people are anxious, both physiologically and also psychologically? What's going on for them? I think that's a good question because I think sometimes understanding um, how your brain works and how brain function can impact on our mind and our thinking and it can then impact on behaviour in ways that can be quite self-sabotaging and, and, and cause us problems is, is really useful. What we need to recognise is this part of the brain, it's called the frontal cortex. It's the part of the brain we use to regulate ourselves emotionally. So I might feel really angry, but you know what? I'm just going to have a little chat with myself inside, take a deep breath and walk on because I don't want to engage in conflict. It's talking to me and helping me work out what I want to do and how I want to behave. But if you think about it, children don't make decisions, they can't look after themselves, struggle to regulate their behaviour and their emotions. So as adults, as parents, as educators, etc., our job is to provide nurture and education and support and love and guidance and care and all the things that children require for that part of the brain to develop. The inner core of the brain is, is an area, it's called the limbic area. So that's the emotional area of the brain. And that's the part of the brain that is active when we are in an emotional situation, particularly related to anxiety. So that part of the brain, when it's activated, it activates what is called the fight, flight or freeze response, which is basically anxiety. And as that response happens, we will flip from our logical, rational, thoughtful prefrontal cortex, the frontal area of our brain, into the more animal, instinctive survival areas of our brain. And so that's what we're seeing. So when I talked earlier about children who are becoming afraid, let's say, to go outside because they've internalised a fear of being outside as being threatening because there's a virus out there and we've all been in lockdown and I can't go outside, I can't go back to school, oh, mummy, what if? What if is a key anxiety question? What if I catch it? And all that sort of stuff. There we can see that these children are becoming overwhelmed by the limbic receptors, by the part of the emotional part of the brain, and they're struggling to rationalise their anxiety. That's amazing. And the reason I think it's amazing is that it's so helpful just to understand what is sitting behind these words that people use all of the time, but often in quite a throwaway sense. But I'm not always sure that we're using them accurately. Tanya, we've got schools all over the world uh, and a number of our schools have recently opened in, in Switzerland and in Asia. And we know from them there are certain changes in how they look and how they have to function during this period. Could you help us advise parents about how to prepare their children for an environment 
environment that is different and uncertain and, and perhaps anxiety inducing. And I suppose if I could also tag on a second part of that question, through the eyes of students, if they themselves are feeling anxious in terms of trying to empower them, what sort of things could they do to proactively help manage this? I think uncertainty, as humans, we don't deal well with uncertainty. We don't. I mean, you know, we like things to be certain and clear. That's part of kind of retaining a sort of a balance, a homeostasis, if you like, in our sort of psychological function and well-being. So, um, yeah, uncertainty is going to trigger anxiety. And obviously there is uncertainty about how things will feel now we move into this next stage as we begin to come out of lockdown. And obviously for children going back to school, some of them might be like thrilled beyond belief because they've absolutely, you know, just can't wait to see their mates and they just don't want to be around their parents anymore. Some, as I've talked about earlier, might be very anxious because they may have quite catastrophic anxiety, thoughts and fears about the environment and the environment being harmful. Um, some may deal very well with whatever changes schools are going to have to make to try and, um, and you know, within the spirit of lockdown and, 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 and sort of managing, you know, health and well-being and all the things that we've all had to think about a lot. Um, some of them might find them fun and enjoy them. Some of them re might really struggle with them. A lot of people might say, oh, don't talk about that. Oh, it's going to make them anxious. But actually not talking about something sets someone up to find it even more difficult to cope with. So I think it's worth that parents really sit down with their children and really at an age appropriate level, talk about how things seem to be, what they are being told might happen, how the classroom might look, how playtime might look, how social interaction might look, whether they can drop them at the school gates like they used to, or is that, I mean, whatever the, the arrangements will be, you know, um, uh, you know, forewarned is forearmed, right? The more you know ahead of, of the game, the better you, you can get your head around it. And so conversation is really important. Don't avoid a conversation. Um, a lot of anxious children will internalise. So a lot of kids will, will, will not want to talk about what makes them anxious. Often people get very superstitious when they're anxious and they think if I talk about it, then it makes it more likely to happen. And that's, again, because the rational brain is kind of dulled as our limbic brain takes over. So with very little kids, you could do, you know, little, little techniques like you can create a little box with them, a little worry box and say to the children, look, anybody got a worry in the day, just pop it in the book, write it on a piece of paper, pop it in the box. And then we can have worry time for 20 minutes at the end of the day. And we can all sit around and we can hear everybody talk about what's making them feel worried. And then we can all think about ways to help them feel okay about it and how they can cope with it and, and what sorts of, you know, it might be that special pebble that we all remember getting when we went to the seaside that time. Maybe you could take that in your pocket. Would that make you feel better going back to school? Or, you know, okay, I think I'm going to email your teacher beforehand and let them know that you're concerned about this. I think giving children a way to express what's on their mind is really, really important. And the same with older kids in, in the terms of conversation. Be very careful with anxious kids. Often they start reassurance seeking. And you've also got to be very careful not to over reassure a child because children have to learn to self-soothe, which is why sort of saying, look, let's have this time of the day to talk about whatever is on our mind is quite good because you kind of give it a time of the day and you get the children or the, or the young person just to hold on to their anxiety to then talk about it. And then I think what you want to be doing is thinking about different things that you can do to help them prepare themselves for school. So improving sleep. Uh, 
reducing their screen time because we know from the co-space study children are much more on screens of course they are because they're on screen for school they're on screen for gaming and leisure and all that sort of stuff as they would have been normally and there are also now only contact they have with their friends so screens sleep routine getting back into a routine um thinking about really useful things that you can do when you feel anxious how you can manage your breathing or you know little mantras that as a family you know little things that we will all say together in our head you know to help us all feel better just create a sort of language as a family and a way of talking about it and give your child their own anxiety management strategies to enable themselves to expose themselves to this next stage of change which is going to be anxiety provoking for anyone Sleep has been the number one issue during lockdown for our students, parents and staff, actually, with poor sleep patterns and disrupted and disturbed sleep really becoming um, a regular problem. And we know that the the evidence between the link between sleep and our physical and mental health is is really compelling. And we've produced resources for, for parents, you know, that present this. But thinking about where we are now, could you help us understand the science behind why in this odd period our sleep is so much more affected? We know. Um, following um, some kind of traumatic event, um, the people in that traumatic event will report significant sleep disturbance. So we have got quite a lot of research that came out post 9-11. Interestingly, during the 2008 global financial crash, um, there, people working in the, finan- in the finance sectors talked about sleep disturbance. So sleep is disturbed in times of heightened stress and anxiety and trauma. And let's not forget, there are a lot of deaths, you know, there are people who are losing loved ones. We're sitting in our houses hearing day after day about people dying on their own um, and families grieving, not being able to hug each other at funerals. I mean, there's a lot of sadness around, even if you're not directly affected by it yourself. So that is going to have an impact on sleep. One of the phenomena that seems to be coming out at the moment, and again, we've seen it before post 9-11, we saw it in the 2008 financial crash for some people, is people are saying they're dreaming more. And that is just generally because people tend are generally doing more rapid eye movement sleep. So REM sleep is one part of the four sleep cycles. So you have three cycles of sleep from light into deep, and that's called non-REM sleep. And then you go into REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep. And that is when, if you were looking at someone in REM sleep, you'd see it looks like their eyeballs are kind of moving and the brain is actually very active during that part of the sleep cycle. It's when we're most likely to dream. So the non-REM, the light to deep three stages of sleep is reparative sleep. That's when we just sleep because we're tired and we need to repair and restore. And because we're all less active, we're doing less of that sleep and we're doing more of the dream sleep, the REM sleep. And because we're more anxious, we're doing more of the dream sleep. And some people are finding their anxiety is playing itself out in dreams. We're doing more REM sleep because people are generally sleeping later and longer. So dreaming has become a phenomenon and a lot of people are finding that it is tinged with anxiety, memory, memories from the past, People are often doing all sorts of things like clearing out attics, going through boxes. You know, there's so much going on at the moment that our brain in the night particularly is kind of processing all of it. But we also know that sleep is impacted by increased screen use. That's to do with the blue light that's emitted through a screen. 
blue light has shorter wavelengths and those wavelengths impact on there's a part of the brain called the pineal gland and that's the gland that is responsible for our diurnal rhythms our sleep wake rhythms they're called circadian diurnal rhythms so in our natural environment blue light reduces at night there is less short wavelength blue light at night which is why our body naturally will feel sleepy as nighttime comes as the light changes and then our pineal gland will release a hormone called melatonin and that's how we go to sleep if you're looking at a screen a lot you're blasting your brain with these short wavelength blue with blue light and that is going to affect the release of melatonin so then you turn off your screen you turn off your light you close your eyes and bang your mind is whirring and you can't sleep in terms of going back to school you've got to get sleep back you've got to get technology out of children's rooms kids have to be off their screens at least an hour before bed there has to be a good sleep routine before bed wind down you know bath or shower the bedroom should really be for sleeping it shouldn't have been for working if possible so bed the you know that the cues around us tell us it's time to go to sleep reading or if you struggle to sleep listening to an audio book listening to an app like calm or headspace just to kind of help you talk yourself into sleep and if your kids are going to sleep at two and waking at 10 you're going to have to be brutal and get them to get up at eight even if they didn't go to sleep till two because what you'll do is you'll shift the sleep rounds so that then they'll go to sleep earlier and wake up earlier but just one point about adolescence. During adolescence, there are huge brain changes going on and the prefrontal cortex starts to go through a massive structural reorganization to prepare for adulthood. That's why teenage behavior is challenging because you know, you've had this lovely well-behaved kid who suddenly becomes like, what, who are you? It's part of the task of what's called individuation, which is the development from childhood to adulthood, how I become my own self. And to become myself, for a while, I have to tell you, with all due respect as my parents, that your ideas suck and I really don't want to take your advice. And yeah, yeah, whatever, but, you know, I know better. That's the way I start to test out the boundaries around what I think and what I believe. And my brain prefrontal cortex is changing. So I'm much more emotional. I'm much more likely to get angry or tearful. Well, so you don't understand me. And I've got lots of peer issues going on. And my hormones are kicking in. And my sex drives are kicking in. And I'm locked down at home with my parents. Can't see my friends. It is a disastrous experience for that age group. Because everything about lockdown is completely against everything they need to experience developmentally. And so we've kind of got to cut our kids a bit of slack. That is an age group that will be really struggling. Uh, they're going to be on their screens more because they need to be with their friends. So their sleep is going to be disrupted. So we've got to also be understanding of what this age group are going through. It's really interesting there, Tanya, because you've woven together the, the issues of sleep and screen time. And, and what we found in our organisation is that, um, as Beth said, sleep was identified as the number one issue that people were struggling with. And I don't think it will surprise you that the second issue that people identified was screen time and, and concerns about the, the amount of time on screen because of home learning. And also, obviously, children and teenagers wanting to socialise with, you know, with, with their friends during this time. What does the evidence tell us around the impact of screen time on well-being and mental health? It's all about sleep. 
sleep is absolutely fundamental to how we think, feel and behave. Sleep sits at the core of our well-being. And we are seeing as clinicians, I would say, I mean, I'm 53 years old. I've been doing this job for 30 years now. So I've probably got quite a good longitudinal view of child and adolescent mental health. I think I'm working with the most sleep-deprived generation I've ever worked with. And I think when we talk about the spike in child and adolescent mental health, I think there is a big part of that that is linked to very poor sleep habits and uh, poor, you know, poor sleep requirements not being met during the night, waking up, kids gaming. If you're gaming internationally, if you've got friends in a country in another time zone, these are things that parents need to be aware of. And parents will often say to me, um, oh, I know, but it's so difficult. They don't want to give their phone up. I don't, you know, there's rows. You're their parent, right? So I don't, you know, sort of, you're going to have to set a boundary. You pay the phone contract, cancel the phone contract if it's really bad and your kid is sleep deprived and they just will not give up their phone and you're fighting them. Don't fight your kid, just set a boundary. We are supposed to be able to say no to our kids and it is difficult and tempers are more frayed when we all live on top of each other. But we cannot expect children and young people to manage their own boundaries around well-being if we're not supporting them to do that. And sleep is vital. And if you want your kids to be able to transition back into education and generally just get through this very difficult and challenging time, then they have to go to bed as if it's school during the week. And then they have to, they can knock themselves out on the weekend and chill and chat and have fun on Friday and Saturday night. But I think fundamentally, it is about parents remembering that they're in charge and they set the rules and they have to find a way for children to understand what the rules are by there being incentives for sticking to it and consequences for not. So if I'm hearing you correctly, what you're saying is that there's an absolute link between screen time and sleep and we should see them as connected. They're not separate issues. Absolutely. Yeah. And also the third thing is in terms of content and contact. You know, kids unsupervised on their phones for long periods are more vulnerable. Who, who are they in contact with? What are they reading? What, are they, what content is out there? There's a lot of conspiracy theories out there at the moment. There's a lot of people who say really awful things out there. There are lots of ways that children bully each other online. I mean, this is a conversation that you have to have with your children. This is something you have to understand and they have to feel able to talk to you about. It's not just um, screens breaking our sleep in the night if we're waking up to game or we're waking up because there's been an alert because someone's just fallen out with their boyfriend's whatever thing, whatever drama going on. Um, It's also because children might be reading things or engaging in behaviours in the in the in the night on on their screens that are actually unsafe for them. And so this is an important issue across a number of areas. And it happens. It happens. then children are anxious and then they won't sleep as well. Yeah, And this, of course, isn't just a lockdown issue. It's just exacerbated here. I find it really interesting because when parents come into clinics and they, you know, often parents are very worried about their child's academic development and are they, you know, are they, you know, we're worried they're not focusing, they're not concentrating, they're not learning. And there's a real focus on that sort of fetishising IQ, fetishising what my children know and how they'll learn and what results they get and all that. And Actually, 
the basic stuff like how well is your child sleeping? What's their diet like? How balanced is their lifestyle? How good are they at socializing? What is their social skill development? How well are they doing with their friends? That stuff kind of gets pushed to one side. It's almost like we've lost a focus on, on how to build resilience in children and how to enable children to be their best selves. And, and all of those things are almost, I'm guessing from your perspective, the readiness for learning, that learning cannot take place unless all of those basic elements are in place. Absolutely. Absolutely. Couldn't have put it better myself. So just thinking then about the return to school, I think what I'm hearing you say is, is that one of the most important things for all children and young people thinking about that return it is very much just about routine. It's as simple as that. It's about thinking about routines and being prepared for that change. Is that right? Absolutely correct. Prepare, have a conversation, look at what's making you anxious, find ways to help children learn anxiety management strategies. You know, if you're very anxious in the morning before school, the family could go for a really brisk walk with the dog, just really kind of, oh, let's just kind of get ourselves set up for the day, whatever. Um, breathing exercises. There's some really lovely, um, there's some lovely um, apps for children. There's one called Clear Fear, which is really helpful for children who feel anxious. They've got a little breathing circle teaches children how to do relaxation, how to calm your thoughts. There's a great series of books by an American psychologist called Dawn Hoopner. She does a book called What to Do If You Worry Too Much. That's a beautiful book for six to 12-year-olds. If you look at Mood Juice, which is NHS Scotland, they've got some great downloadable PDFs about anxiety, social anxiety, depression, panic, all different kinds of things for older kids and teenagers and young adults and, and adults. That, that's a really good resource as well. And actually, Kathy Cresswell, who is the professor at Oxford, who's doing the co-space study, she's written a great book called How to Help Your Child's um, Anxieties and Fears. And that's also a really good book for parents who are kind of concerned about their child and that they themselves need to manage their anxiety about their child's anxiety. There's been extensive commentary on, on mental health issues during lockdown. And, and I wonder if we can flip that. From your professional perspective, are there positives that can come out of a period like this for mental well-being, not only for the return to school, but, but for, for beyond it, you know, for, for life? Yeah, I think that's a, such a great question. I'm really happy you asked me that because, you know, generally the question is, what's the doom, what's the gloom? You know, I think one of the, one of the things that myself and a number of other professionals um, I think we all think about it in child and adolescent mental health is we think about resilience, but it's an interesting experience. It's one that we've had to adapt to. And adaptability is an incredibly important aspect of survival for any species. You have to adapt to your circumstances. But I also think what it has done is it's, it's enabled kids to recognize that life isn't safe and certain and yes, that is challenging, but it is something we have to understand. And then we have to recognise our own resilience in the face of those challenges. And so if you look at the post-traumatic stress disorder literature, in other words, the stress um, that comes out of trauma, alongside that is literature around post-traumatic growth. And it also talks about how a lot of people who have been through extreme trauma or adversity can come out of it feeling a lot stronger and they feel that they have grown as a human being. And I guess that's something we can think about for our children and young people and for ourselves. What has this taught me? 
what have I understood? Connectivity, kindness, sleep, exercise, sitting with your family, enjoying time because that's all we've got and recognizing that you are resilient because you've managed, you've done really well. I think these are the positive takeouts from this very difficult and challenging time. That's an absolutely fantastic way to finish this really with some positivity. But what I've particularly enjoyed is the blend of scientific evidence from a really well-established theoretical base, alongside very practical and grounded advice from a practicing clinician who deals with this day in, day out. This is, this is what you do. It's not something you just talk about. It's what you do. So on behalf of all of our listeners and everybody within the Cognita family, thank you so much, Professor Byron, for taking the time, but particularly just to share your expertise and your learning. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been a privilege to learn from you. And remember, we have more resources for parents accessible from the homepage of our website, cognita.com, including previous audio episodes of the Cognita podcast. But for now, take care and goodbye. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. Goodbye and do take care.